Computer, initialize Holosuite. episode of The Fire Caves, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Perry. And I'm your host, David. Tonight is another special episode, uh, Fire Caves After Dark. We're going to be talking about Season 3 a little bit, as we did last time, but more we're going to talk about other things, including The Expanse, Star Trek Picard, Mass Effect, all kinds of fun stuff this episode. But before we continue, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube as The Fire Caves, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. That is correct. And it is a particularly chilly night here for us in Texas, as I found (laughs) out just a little bit ago. So a great time to talk about books, of course. (laughs) So for those of you who've been following along, as David said, we have been uh, making our way through the Expanse book series. We're both really big fans of the show. We're we're both very upset that the show ended at season six when there are nine books. And now we're basically reading to figure out what has been left what was left out and what has been left behind and so forth and hope like hell they come back and give us more of these fantastic characters and their story um so while the expanse will be the main focus of our night there are some other things that um we'll be talking about as well and um we're going to get into all that of course but before we do any of that uh david how's your week been yeah it's been all right uh work's been uppy downy good uppy downy Works normal. Uh, the time change, man. Ugh, gosh. Yes. I, thought, I, I, I keep hearing that like there are politicians out there in the ether who are who are ready to end this, and they'll they'll put up the legislation, and then they never follow through. I'm just like, so this could be a bipartisan a, win for everybody. <laughs> so for as long as I can remember, this argument has come around. Like clockwork, <laughs> every year when the spring forward, fall back, you know, comes up, do yeah. we really need to have a time change? Is this important? And, you know, the story goes that the reason why we started doing it in the first place was really to help out with farmers. Yeah. Because giving them that extra hour and, and moving the hour and everything else allowed them to work earlier at one point in the year and then later at another point in the year. Uh, but now the way that our you know society has changed, the way, the way civilization has changed, really, um, doesn't really seem to be a need to do this. Right. Um, so, yeah, the argument gets uh, touted out. I know there are certain areas that don't observe daylight savings time. I know that there's a city in uh, Indiana, as a matter of fact, that doesn't observe it. So and they seem to be doing just fine. Um, yeah. Personally, I don't care either way, except to say whenever we finally decide which way we're going to do this and we're either we're going to do it forever or we're never going to do it again. Let's make sure that when that decision is made, it's after we fall back, give, <laughs> give me, give me my hour back. And yeah. then, and then, yeah, we can yeah. stay that way. Yeah. Um, I don't want to think that I've forever lost an hour. At some point, so. <laughs> the yeah. government can take all kinds of things, but dang it, if they can't take an hour right, of my time, <laughs> right. Don't take my hour. Maybe, maybe what we really need to do is go back to the, uh, days of, uh, you know, early um, 
I guess the late 17, early 18th century, whatever, where, you know, because there was no electricity, people used to have what was called a second rising. So you would, you know, you would work throughout the day during daylight hours and then you would go to bed. And then when right when the sun started to really first come up, they would get up again and do indoor activities and then go back to sleep. And so you had this like weird period in the middle of the night, basically, where your whole family was up and active again and doing things. But it was just all internal home stuff. And then you would wait until daylight hours to venture out and do your your other stuff. So um, I don't know. I don't know why that seems it's intriguing to me on one hand, but also weird on another. But uh, whatever, you know. Right. I get weirded out these days anyway. Like, um, I, I find myself thinking about how there was a time when being home by midnight was, like, offensive. Right? Now I'm like, what do you mean you're not home? Like, where where could you possibly be? What could possibly be so interesting that <laughs> you're midnight. not home? Right. At midnight, you know, like go, go home. That's where all your stuff is. Why don't you want to be there? Like, I don't, yeah. yeah. And so I see people now and they're like, Oh, I was down on, you know, sixth street or rainy street or whatever until three in the morning. I just think, why? Like, what could you have possibly been doing down there right. at that time? You know, but, um, yeah, I mean, hey, speaking of which, in local news, there was a stabbing. Two people were stabbed on Rainy Street. Um, really? I guess that was it. I could think it was either Friday night, either last night or Thursday night. Oh, and They're, my they're still investigating. So, hey, yet another reason to not be out and down there um, <sighs> yeah. late. So, but yeah, yeah there's, there's a bit of an uproar there. Apparently, Rainy Street has changed a lot uh, recently. It's become a bit more hazardous to be down there yeah wow nice now for those of you who don't know uh, we live in austin texas and i'm talking about rainy street which is a rather infamous uh area for you know doing bar crawls and uh nightlife and all that stuff so there's lots of bars lots of clubs and all that kind of stuff is down there and uh yeah if you ever come to austin chances are you would end up there at some point in your in your visit if i mean if that's your thing of course i mean you know but um yeah and and i had i had gone you know i used to go but i had never had issues it never seemed anything other than just lively, you know, lots of music, lots of people, whatever. But I never had any issues when I was down there. And I never saw any issues either. I didn't see, like, you know, people fighting or violence or anything like that. So it's strange to hear about it now. But right. I guess it's a sign of how things have, you know, kind of changed. But, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my week has been okay. I keep seeming to injure myself. And, um, oh, no. <laughs> uh, I can't, I, I don't know. I've kind of fallen into this well of recurring injuries. You know, I, I hurt my back and then I seem to keep hurting it. And even when, and when I, I think I'm better and I rest and whatever, then I start to do something and it'll just seize up really bad. I was helping out my, uh, sister and brother-in-law at, uh, their wine bar. And, um, really it was, um, it was a struggle. And I've helped out several times in the past, and I never had any issues. But this past week doing it, I mean, I was I was stiff, I was slow, I was leaning on things a lot, I had to sit down. And different times, I was really, to be honest, I was embarrassed. Because, you know, there yeah. was a time when I could just, you know, just go, right? And it, right. it didn't matter. And now, like, I mean, it was just, it was difficult. And I was, I started to sweat a lot. 
you know, and I was just like, man, this is, um, this is not good. (laughs) So I, um, plan to go to a doctor, uh, this week and uh, this coming week and really get checked out and make sure that I truly am okay. And if, or if I need to like do something else, do some rest or whatever, and then really kind of concentrate on, um, getting my health back together. I know I've talked about it a lot and I've done different things kind of like experimentally, but um, I think that might also be part of the problem is not doing anything on a, you know, just on a more consistent level. So right. yeah, after I get checked out by the doctor, I just want to see what they recommend and whatever else. And I mean, um, I still feel like I'm pretty young. You know, I just turned 37. I don't feel that old, you know, um, but um, maybe I'm just <laughs> doing things wrong. Maybe I haven't adjusted properly. Maybe I'm not wearing the right shoes. I don't know. Like, <laughs> it, something is off in uh, my my whole thing there. So I'm going to go get checked out and then uh, hopefully be right as rain, as they say. Gotcha. Well, um, to continue on talking, I did say I wanted to give an update about uh, Trek stuff. Um, We will also continue to be talking about Season 3 of Deep Space Nine since it just ended for us. Um, But And and moving into Season 4, which we will start next week in a very big way. I'm really excited about it. I'm going to go ahead and announce now that what we want to do is a special um, Fire Caves giveaway for Season uh, 4. So what you will have to do if you want to participate um, will be, one, to listen to or watch live our broadcast of our very first episode of Season 4, which will be next week. And then um, leave us a comment, question, something, some way that, one, you can identify yourself and um, tell us something about the you know our show, The Fire Caves, that you like or dislike or whatever it is. Again, be polite. <laughs> but tell us tell us something, right? And then um, once we get a certain number of, you know, comments or whatever, we'll toss all the various usernames into a hat or something. We'll do a drawing. Whichever one wins, we'll reach out to you, get your information, and we will send you a specialized, personalized Fire Caves mug, okay? Um Completely free. You don't have to do anything. You just tell us where you are. I wish okay. I had mine. I could show it off. But yeah, yeah. David, yeah. David should. Uh, he should have shown up. He doesn't. We'll get to that next week, I guess. Okay. Um, <laughs> I definitely use it. I've been using it a lot. Yeah. So. And in addition to that, so just so that you know, that season four opener episode will be the Way of the Warrior, which airs, which is technically a two-part, well, not even technically, it is a two-parter, but on streaming platforms now, it has been officially lumped together so that you have a seamless transition from uh, part one to part two. You don't even notice, which I think is a stroke of genius because you just really <laughs> get locked in on the show and as a person who watched it originally when it aired, I know where the break is, but I like talking to people and seeing if they can figure out where the break is, because, mild spoiler, it's not where you think it is. So that's all I'm going to say. It's not where you think it is. Um, And don't try to do the whole, oh, well, I know the show is normally you know 50 minutes, and so try to do the math. Doesn't work. I've looked. It doesn't work. So you can't do that. So um, does that mean I should watch both episodes in preparation? Yes. Okay, yes, so we're not should. doing. Just go ahead. We're not going to no. do uh, part one, part two. Okay, all right. No, all right. 
we're not going we're not going to split it up. We're going to just do the whole thing, and we're going to have a couple of guests as well to talk about this episode because it is one that I just I really love. You don't want to draw it out. It's... You don't want to have an episode about part one and then an episode about no, part two, and I don't, you just want to yeah. rush through all the content it's, as much as possible. <laughs> it's not about rushing. It's more about the fact that I love it so much that I would be upset that I had to break it up um, for another week. We could take do. two episodes to just talk about it for two episodes. We could, yeah, yeah. We, could, we could do that. We could do that, but we are definitely going to watch all of it and, and go. Got it. So, um, so yeah, if you um, just tune in with us next week when we get through all of that, and again, remember uh, to leave us a comment or something, uh, you know, question, comment, concern, something about um, our show, The Fire Caves, and then we will, if we will do the drawing, if you get if you get picked, we'll reach out to you and um, get you your mug. Okay. Um, in other Trek news, if you are not watching Star Trek Picard, you really, really should. Um, as much as I enjoyed the first two seasons, this third season, it, it's fantastic. Like I can't think of any <laughs> other way to describe it. I wish that the other two seasons had been this. Like they. It's it's just great. There are so many great callbacks. There's um like they've done the nostalgia part right, like not just making it a a cliche or or a contrived moment or anything like that. Like the the things that get injected into it, they make sense for the story. It's not just you know oh we want this person because we thought they were cool when we were a kid. We want like none of that. Like I mean there is that of course the the director will tell you the showrunner will tell you how big of a fan of uh, the next gen uh, series he was and right. is you know but um they've really done a lot to like understand the progression of the characters lives and what's taken them from where they were to where they are now and there are so many just just great callbacks and um i know you haven't watched it yet so i'm going to ask your permission right would you would you be okay with me giving you one spoiler? Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I've been I have been thinking about this since I saw it, and I've just I've wanted to tell you. And um, <laughs> um, you one of one of your favorite recurring characters came back, and I I loved it. I I, I the, all of their scenes were fantastic. Absolutely, from beginning to end. And I almost called you to be like, David, you have to watch. If you don't watch anything else, you must watch this episode. The recurring you character? Which recurring A recurring character. character. Um, formerly Ensign Roe Laren, now Commander Roe. Oh, down. gosh, yes. yes. Oh, goodness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if you had called me, I'd have been like, oh, man. Oh. And, and she was... She was wonderful. Michelle Forbes was fantastic. There are little elements of her um, her Battlestar character. I feel were evident. Well, in I mean, obviously, here. yeah, yeah. You know, uh, there was there she's was been certain... there, done that by now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And maybe I, I don't know if maybe I was just like seeing it because I want to see it, but like she she did certain things in the way she spoke a couple of times. I was like, that's not. That's not Roe. That's um, Admiral Kane, <laughs> you know. So, yeah. um, but she was so good. She was so fantastic, and I mean, it was a shock to see her, you know. Yeah. And trust me, like the whole I I I work so hard 
to stay away from spoilers for myself, right? Yeah. And so the episodes come out every Thursday. And uh, this past Thursday, man, my Twitter was blowing up. Oh, my God, did you see? Can't believe I, I just I shut it off. I was like, nope, <laughs> I, I don't want to know. And so when I saw it, though, I I understood and I was in it and I shouted here. I was like, yes, it's it's Ensign Row. And then she's like, uh, and they they called her like, hey, it's, you know, Ensign Row. She's like a uh, commander. Row. I was like, uh, <laughs> commander, excuse me. Yeah. Excuse me. Commander yeah. Row. <laughs> wow. And um, uh, uh, she was she was great. David, she was she was fantastic. Yeah, that character uh, was. So good. The fact yes. that again that even on inter- the on um on Next Generation, her character was already being presented as like if if the show had gone beyond season seven, eight, and into eight or nine, like of course if again anyone who's seen TNG and the end of it knows that the penultimate episode was about her basically kind of betraying Starfleet for uh the um the, for the marquee that for the marquee. But, um, yeah, if the show had kept going, man, you would have known that they would have had to have her – like, her recurring character was just one that you, you couldn't get away from. And Absolutely. the fact and, – and Kira has been a great character, and she has been a star, but there are definitely moments where I'm like, this character was, was, was trying to be Ensign Rowe. This, this, I mean, the character was well, clearly a replacement for Ensign Rowe um, in, in several ways. But, sorry, go ahead. No, I, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, that character um, was originally supposed to be, you know, Ensign Rowe, who gets a promotion and goes to Deep Space Nine and so forth. Um, I feel like the character would have been would have ultimately become different because of the history we already had established with Rowe, and and uh, I think that they ended up having to retool a lot of things to give Kara, Kira her own unique um, path. You know, so I don't watch it because I thought the same thing initially, but I don't watch it anymore and think, oh, that could have been Ensign Row. Because the more if you do that, there are more a lot of things that Kira does don't make sense if you're trying to frame them under the this should have been Row Laren, you right. know. Um, but yeah, yeah if you just take Kira fair. as her own yeah. separate character, then it works. Yes. Um, but yeah, she was for for a character that had such a short run again yeah. she came to next generation late she wasn't on a whole lot of episodes but yeah. the fact that the episodes that she was on were so great like even that silly one where they all kind of like temporarily lose their memories and no one's sure who's who's in charge who's in charge yeah. and whatever else and her and Riker get down and dirty because of course they do you know um you oh know, that's oh, right oh that's yeah. right <laughs> so you know there's there are those, but then, yeah, her ultimate moment of being used as a spy, and she ultimately decides to betray the Federation and join the Maquis, and the, and it wasn't just betraying the Federation, it was betraying Jean-Luc Picard, the man yes. who, had, who had vouched for her, who had put so much faith and trust in her, and had yes. really mentored her, and had this bond with her, and then suddenly yeah. at the end, she was like, I'm not going back, and then I don't know if anybody remembers that episode, but the end where, um, you know, where Riker is informing uh, Picard about Roe deserting. Betrayal, yeah. And the, and the betrayal, and they, and then, you know, Picard's just sitting there silent in his ready room, you know, and then Riker leaves, and they do that 
you know, that slow panning shot where on his face and the episode ends and he's just kind of like shrouded in darkness and he's not saying a word. I mean, yeah. he looks so pained there. And I was like, for a man who says nothing in the scene, that was some hell-fied acting. He did a yeah. great job. Oh, and what's, um, what's so great about the episode yeah. and her acting and the whole character and everything was like in the moment, like I, I felt for the character and she's Lieutenant Rowe by that point. And that's the whole yeah. thing is she's been promoted. Um, like you do feel like, yeah, the, the Federation are kind of the bad guys in that episode. They're the ones who are not doing their job. They're enforcing this, this arbitrary treaty with the Cardassians. Yeah. Like, yeah, it, it feels like, and again, that's the penultimate episode. And in the penultimate episode of TNG, it's like our trusted crew are the baddies well, in that episode almost not the two almost, baddies obviously but, but it's but, like but it's like a lot of what they were doing that was making them you know bad they also had they were op- they were operating on bad information and right. as things started to come to light you know Picard was trying to you know fix the problem but it became exceedingly difficult right. and um yeah they they end that very bitterly there's not really a true resolution and Roe her desertion really just kind of like just nails that home that no one was a winner here and uh yeah that last bit of betrayal um and that's what i think about too moving forward and going on to deep space nine with that character there's no way they wouldn't have been able to have that come back up and to have you know like when when picard initially showed up to pass the torch to cisco if if roe had been there instead of kira there's no way they wouldn't have had um, a meeting and a showdown of sorts, and it would have greatly overshadowed yes. what was going on with Cisco, only because uh, Cisco was a new character to us. The right. relationship between Roe and Picard was old; it was established. Right. We knew that grudge match was was faded, right? right? So yeah, it would have definitely overshadowed, and um, so yeah, you kind of have to be like, it, it worked. What they did. Uh, it ultimately ended up working, but yeah, um, to see her come back and have her scenes with everybody and, you know, they're kind of going through things and we find out who she is and how important she's been to the story um, the so meantime, far as yeah. well, right, has, um, in the implications of what she's been up to, is great. And then, like I said, her scenes, man, I mean, she was, she was spot on, man. Michelle Forbes has not, <laughs> has not lost a step. She was fantastic. She was absolutely fantastic. And um, yeah, I almost caught I was going to be like, David, just turn it it on. Watch it right now. Yeah. With Discovery ending. I want to catch up. I want to catch up on it all. Just go ahead. You should do it now. There's there's, there's, there's five episodes, man. They got five left, and then it's over. Screw season one and season two. You don't need them. Watch season three. And um, you. Yeah, you can you can thank me later. I'll I'll, I'll wait. I'll wait. Um, yeah, and with this with discovery ending, strange new worlds is you know slated to come back soon. They haven't really given an official date for that. And then of course we have lower decks and prodigy also in the works. But yeah, I'm hoping that they kind of do what they had initially set out to do, which was you were you should have been able to transition from one show to the next. As one show ends, another one's new season begins. But now Discovery will be leaving a void there um, for us when its run is over with the fifth and final season. And then we'll have the other shows. So um, 
I don't know. There's all kinds of talk about spinoffs from the Picard series. Who's going to do what, whatever. But um, um, I hope they do something and they keep the writing team because they have they have nailed it. They've absolutely nailed it uh, in this third season, and I couldn't be happier with what I'm right. seeing. Yeah, gotcha. So, but all of that to say. <laughs> We are now here to talk about not just Trek stuff, but also The Expanse. And yeah. um, we've been kind of teeing this up a bit throughout our other episodes. And uh, we are on the third book of The Expanse series, which is called uh, Abaddon's Gate. Gate. Got my, got mm-hmm. my copy here. Now, <laughs> as I was telling David a little bit ago, I, as much as I tried, I have not quite finished it. I'm almost done. Um, but we're still going to talk about it anyway, because there's a lot in here. And um, I wanted to ask you about a lot of different things that I was reading um, in this book as well. And I just wanted to say, first, my opinion of the book has changed. Um, I know when we first started talking about it, I had said that, you know, I was finding it difficult to read this Mm -hmm. one. I don't know if you remember that or not. Yeah. Um, But as I got into it, uh, I think this book may end up being my favorite book. It's got a lot of great things in here um, that we're going to touch on, of course. But um, I want to turn it over to you for a bit there because I've been rambling here. Um, Oh, okay. Yeah, what do you think of this book, Abaddon's Gate? Well, I I would say that of them so far, it is not my favorite of the three. Not that I dislike it. I'm not saying it's like falling out of favor. Um, The way I would talk about it is first off, book one – is um it's just two characters it's holden and miller and so we're getting a lot of the content of the story from their perspective and about halfway through their stories meet up and then we get to the rest of the book starting in book two we start getting holden miller is no longer one of their characters uh again spoilers he has died by end of book one um sorry for anyone who didn't know that but um and but we get other characters taking the place of, you know, point of view characters. And that helps. Uh, the writing is fantastic. I have to say, and I'll, I'll explain a little more about this in a moment, but I just want to say the writing yeah. is fantastic. And the characterization of each character is fantastic. Every character feels unique. Ava Sarala is a perfect example. Yeah. You love her. She is our cr- grouchy, lovable old lady. And then in this book, we have bull. He's the hard hard-nosed guy who gets things done we have prax who was the uh shy introverted kind of awkward father who was you know in a crisis traumatic situation um we have anna who is a you know she's a methodist methodist pastor yeah Yeah. we started on that but anyway (laughs) <laughs> so um, the characters are always totally unique, and the characterizations are fantastic. Um, but I do feel that because we have multiple point-of-view characters, and because they sometimes are very different, you know, Prax is not a point-of-view character in Book 3. He's not even really there at yeah. all. Um, that does mean that um, some of the continuity of the story is a little bit – I mean, it's not, it's not cotton. how do I put it? You're, you're, you get Holden's perspective, you know, but it's not as often. And mm. um, usually, in this, in book three, the the horror element, the the sci-fi horror element, takes a back seat for the planetary conflicts between Mars, Earth, 
and the belt in this story. Uh, now, based around the fact that they are still dealing with the protomolecule, but a lot of the fun sci-fi horror elements are taking a back seat. Um, instead, we're getting the inner politics, which is also fun. Don't get me wrong. Again, I'm not saying I don't like this book. Um, but the... I guess the the real the the proto molecule is the is the the sci-fi element that gets thrown in, and you only get to see it about partway through book one before it really gets introduced. It was a murder mystery in book one that they're trying to solve, basically. In this one, everyone's just kind of confused. What's happening? Why are things yeah. happening? And then people are freaking out, and they're all just trying to solve the situation. And so, let me go this more- way. I, I, I've said it before, I'll say it again. I like the show version of events better because mm. I feel the show was their second attempt to get the plot right. Not that they did it wrong the first time, but they got to edit it down, make changes. Yeah. And for me, I think it just means that the show was able to work out some kinks. Again, not that I don't like the book. I'm not saying I don't like the book. I do like the book. Um, but let me put it this way. In this book, book three, is only about six or seven episodes of the TV show, whereas book one was all of season one and the first half of season two. So in this one, they condensed a lot of stuff down, and I feel like that in a lot of places worked. There are some places where I don't think it worked, and I can talk more about that. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I like it. I, I I mean, it's one of those things, it's like, you, how do you pick your favorite child? <laughs> like, that's not a thing. It's easy. It's easy. <laughs> Just have one. And you have to worry about it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, and um, as a quick comparison, I just want to point out that yeah. uh, the, the other book I've been reading, so I finished book three a little while back, and then this week I started reading The Peripheral, which is a book that uh, has also been made into a TV show that's on Amazon Prime, which I have not yet watched. I want to watch it. Um, this book is also a sci-fi uh, book. It's set in the near future, uh, and there's time – stuff going on and there are two characters that we're getting point of views on and it always switches between each chapter whose character we're following this book did not do nearly as good a job introducing the characters and the world building as the expanse did i started book four uh so i I read 50 pages of this book and was hella confused because it basically drops you in the middle of the story and it feels like you like you're one book behind because all the characters are talking in like lingo and about things that you're like, am I missing something? That's never a problem with the Expanse. I read the first fifty pages of the Expanse book four while I was waiting for my oil change, and it was great. I was even though I hadn't been with the characters for the last couple weeks, he's like I'm back in it. Avasarala made a cameo, by the way. Oh, I, I said man. that. I said okay. that I didn't think she was back, but she made at least a cameo in the first 50 pages, and she was amazing. Um, and so I'm now halfway through this book because I had I went to I went to Wikipedia and I was looking it up. I was like, "Am I off?" Because it says author of Agency. So I was like, "Is that like a previous book?" But it's actually it's like a prequel sequel book where like events in that one happened both before and after events of this one. Anyway, um, so I, I I love the writing of the Expanse. I feel like this one, it's it's a setup to things that happen after. This book is a is a gateway. Abaddon's Gate is a gateway into more storytelling. Um, yeah, and I, I feel like that is what it is. It's just it's a it's a midquel story in amongst other things that happen 
which is evidenced by the fact that the show condensed this book down to six or seven episodes. Anyway, I talked a lot. Now I rambled. No, No, because I I agree with what you said. And, you know, the the show does definitely condense a lot of book three down. And I realized that I, I, I agree with you, but I think that they did that because this book deals more with like, uh, like the more political climate and then there's also the they they it seems like they're trying to touch on certain philosophies as well when dealing with the protomolecule and the ring and the implications behind it you know especially yeah. the character of anna who we you know get to know a lot in this book um between her bull and melba i think they spend the most time um with really kind of a toss up between bull and Anna giving them their giving their voice to everything. Right. And I'll say right away, I like Anna in the book. I don't like Anna in the show. And it yeah. might be because right. we don't get enough of Anna. Like she seems like such a, I don't know. She just seems so out of place on the show, but in the book, a lot of what she does and says makes more sense to me. And maybe it's because we, we are getting that, not just her internal viewpoint, but we're also hearing her speak to other people and they're, you know, responding to what she's saying and how she's presenting um, the world and her faith while trying to figure out um, humanity's status and dealing with the implications behind the ring. And that's not something that you really see a whole lot of in sci-fi books and in, in or sci-fi in general. In fact, a lot of sci-fi tries to shy away from, move away from religious um, anything. We've right. talked about that a little bit with Deep Space Nine, you know, trying to form and understand the religion of the Bajoran people and the prophets and what they mean and, and how we can kind of, you know, relate and make parallels um, to to humanity and human religions and things like that. Right. Um, this book, though, uh, actually names the religion. I and mean, we've got, we know that there are Mormons here. We know that there are Methodists here. We know that there are Catholics here. We know that these, these religious groups not only exist, but are in prominent positions um, in society because of this book, you know, and Anna trying to come to terms with her own understanding of her religion and the other religions of the representatives that are around her and trying to figure out the implications for God in dealing with the ring. I found to be, um, I, I just, I thought it was really interesting. I, I thought that these would be questions that people would have yes. and thoughts that people would have when they were confronted with something that for the first time was well and truly alien. I mean, we're in, in the book, you know, we've, we can kind of get distracted a little bit by the sci-fi aspect of the fact that, you know, they're talking about, trips to Luna and trips to Io and shooting around Jupiter and Saturn and blah, 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 right? Like all those things. But at the core of all of it, it's just talking about the expanse of humanity from Earth outward. And then and to suddenly encounter something after all this time that is well and truly alien and beyond their comprehension and certainly beyond their control. Everything that the protomolecule represents is that humanity has no grasp on it whatsoever yeah Yeah. and uh seeing her try to reconcile that in the book has been very interesting to me yeah they definitely do a better job of that in the book in the show i mean the character is introduced in season three but in the show season three starts halfway through the book two Mm -hmm. um so her character is introduced as knowing the president of earth or the prime minister of the un or whatever they call him Um, secretary general 
that's it. Yeah. And um, it was a better introduction for a character. So I do like that in the show. There's another example of the show. I don't like the actress who plays her. I forget her name at the moment. Yeah, I think I think, part I think of... that might be part of my issue with her too, because I'm I know that when that act when when they revealed the character and that actress um, came out yeah. as Anna, I was like, ah, oh. that was yeah. my first reaction. Like, oh, I don't like her. Yeah, I remember her on Lost, <laughs> and um, just it's 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 when someone comes off as very moralistic, it 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 it, it can just rub you the wrong way, and the character just comes off as. I'm on the high ground all the time, and I don't know, just it just rubs you the wrong way. And the character in the book just works better. Um, she does ask those big questions about what would it mean for your religious beliefs if you realized that aliens existed and they existed long before, and all that. Great questions to ask. Um, yeah. And the actress's name. Uh, side note: actress's name is uh, Elizabeth Mitchell. Um, now I have not seen her uh, in a while. Mm-hmm. I didn't really watch Lost. I do remember when she was on that show, but like very briefly. I didn't like Lost, so it didn't yeah. register Lost, for me at first. I I watched Lost like six or seven years ago. You know, way after it had ended, of course, and I had already known by that point that the show had ended on bad notes. And I definitely agree with that. But during the first several seasons, the first few seasons, when they were just, it's J.J. Abrams's problem, his mystery box theory of storytelling. You have a mystery box, but you don't ever answer the question about what's in the box. And when you have to start answering those questions, he doesn't have anything in the box. He didn't. Think, he doesn't think it through. He just yeah. yeah. Anyway, but getting back to the expanse, um, when we were first talking about this book, I mean, you had said you weren't quite into it as much. I said yeah. that I think there are three. There, there's the character Bull comes off as a character who is just kind of resigned to his kind of duty. You know, oh. I was put on the station to to you know be security, but I was demoted, and I'm just having to tr- you know he's 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 having to do the work, but he's not like he's not like driven by some question. There's not that inner question that's like driving his personality. He's not trying to find something out about himself. He's not raw. He's a guy who's there, who's having to do a job, and he's the character who we see events from. And okay, fine. And then Melba in the book, I mean, again, I, there's some things about the show that I like better, but there's things about the book I like better about her character. But there's still the problem of this character is super, like, internal. She, like, hates herself, and she hates her dad, yeah. and she hates the world, and she hates Holden, but she doesn't. And she kind of just, you know, no. by the end, she just changes. <laughs> and I so can understand I, why she changes, but yeah. Right. Well, I will say in the book, I feel like they did a better better job characterizing her in the book than they did in the show. And it might be because, as we've already noted, they really did condense a lot of things down for uh, this portion, right? The season three portion. Uh, and um, to me, Melba reads like an abuse victim. Yeah. Like she, she mm-hmm. is a person who, you know, was forever slighted in her family, not just by her father but also her mother but she tended to idolize her father and it's like the more she worshipped him the less he seemed interested in her so she was it was the the abuse was neglect and she pushed herself harder and harder in order to gain admiration in the eyes of a man who just didn't seem to have any time for her and then you know when you listen to or listen when you read her (laughs) moments when she recounts you know the happy moments with the family and things like that. She obviously, she always 
marks how her father and Julie stood out. The you know there were other you know Mao children, and of course the the mom as well. But um, it seems like the to to Melba's perspective, uh, Clarissa's perspective, yes, there was really only there was really only the father, Jules Pierre, Julie, and her. Right. And she was a very distant part of that trio. And right. as much as she tried, she wanted to, she could never get there. And then she kind of like warps and twists herself after her father's downfall, right. feeling like this will be the thing that gets him to finally look at her. And she really just kind of, you know, kills herself, gives herself up entirely in this quest of revenge and develops a real psychopathy behind it you know and she's she's altered her body she's uh yeah she's definitely internalized a lot of things and really just changed entirely in order to perform this one act and um i would say that it it drives her insane you know there's the whole you know the scene in the book where she has made it onto the rasanate and um she's attacking naomi and uh, Anna comes in at the last moment and, you know, saves Naomi there. Um, but then uh, Melba wakes up and she's raging and screaming and pounding on the doors and hurling herself at the the sealed door that Anna and Naomi have trapped her um, by and everything else. She's she's less a person and just just this psychotic creature you know and all the way she's worse than the protomolecule beings that were out there because she's just so deadly with intent there um and yeah and yet even as that's going on she's we're seeing this from her perspective and she's talking about how she's you know things are falling away from her and her plan was you know so elegant so simple and yet she's made all these mistakes and the people she's killed and she's beating herself up about it and there's just so much craziness spinning around in right. this moment, like when reading it, I just thought, yeah, she just sounds like a, a very traumatized, abused individual who has yeah. unfortunately found a terrible way to work through what she's going through. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I am. Um, in the show, they don't give, I'm sorry, they do give the backstory a bit, I think, a little bit better. They, again, they condense it down where um, they're at the party. And we realized that that's when we realized that she's the daughter of Jules Pierre and that she was the sister of Julie. And it's a great backstory scene because we see how, how like just broken Julie was as this person who was so angry at her father for being a terrible person. And yet Julie, uh, Juliet, Juliet, I'm sorry, Clarissa, Clarissa, Clarissa Clarissa had the, the kind of the, you know, the, the, the rose colored glasses on, you know, she, her father could do no wrong, and yet at the the finale of that scene, uh, you know Julie has has left the family. She's you know giving up everything that she's ever had because she feels it's dirty money that her father has. And um, Jules Spear Mao is talking with Clarissa, and he's actually proud of Julie. He's like, she actually does something. All you do is throw parties. The very yeah. party that they're at right now. Uh, that was supposed to be for Julie, like she set all this up. Yeah, so great, it's a great scene. But the book does a better job of explaining the tech that's in her mouth about this, what she did to her body, and how when we first see her in the book, she's not only in the criminal underworld, but she has to kill all these people. And how, like, yeah, you talk about you know working out your trauma. Yeah, gotta go kill a bunch of people to <laughs> work out yeah, your trauma. Yeah, I mean, 
And it, uh, it's one thing to, that's one thing though. I mean, like, uh, it was cool to read, but obviously watching it, the visuals are just are, are stunning, you know. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and I mean that was one of the things too that frustrated me the most about the show was there were so many cool little like just, yeah little things, little detailed things like that that. Obviously, they included, but we never got an explanation for. So it's like if you don't if you don't read the books, you're not going to know what those things are. Even when they do little so-called Easter eggs, where it will appear on a screen somewhere with a breakdown of what it is, you see that screen for like half a second. So unless you are watching it on a computer or something, and you can freeze the screen and enlarge it and whatever else, you're not going to see that detail. You're not going to know what that is. You're right. never truly going to get an explanation for what it is. The book, on the other hand lays it all out for it. I think it's like, you know, there's a two-paragraph section that talks about the um, endocrine modulator that she's got and yeah. what it does to her body and how yeah. she activates it and, and all that. It's all in there. The, the after effects. The yeah. after effects. And the, the, then also we get another part later on where they talk about the long-term debilitating effects and shortened lifespan and all the rest of it because she's doing this to herself over yeah. and over. Yeah. So, yeah, um, there's a lot there that it just kind of highlights why you need to read the book. Yeah. Um, I yeah. like that Bobby in the show is in these scenes. Like Bobby in the book is absent for all this stuff happening in yes. book three, but they, because Bobby was in season three, the first half, they bring her in for the second half. And that makes all the stuff with Holden on the, the station at the center more, um, you know, back and forth, you know, Bobby's like, hey, I know you. I know you're not crazy. I just need you to stop doing this because you're freaking everybody out. And he's like, mm -hmm. I have to do this. You know, Miller's here telling me to do this. The scene in the book where uh, the guy shoots the grenade and that causes oh, um, yeah. the, the station to react. In the book, it's, you know, they, they're these in like, the robotic book, it's terrifying. machines. It is terrifying. In the book, it's terrifying. In the <laughs> what show, I imagined in my head when I read oh. that... Well, yeah, because these robotic, me. these like robotic yeah. spider-looking things come up to the guy and just rip him apart. Like, stop that! Yes. You're dying now. But in the show, I know it's almost the show's even scarier because the proto molecule suddenly picks the guy up, disassembles his entire body, and fixes the hole he made with his body. I, don't get me wrong; it was disturbing. <laughs> oh, it yeah. was definitely both disturbing. of them were disturbing. Yeah. Yes, but in the book, the reason I, I, I'm going to vote for the book on this one too is because, like you said on the show. Only one of these robot things attacks the guy, okay? Whereas in the book, there are several. Yes. So, like, there's one that kind of approaches him at first, but then when the grenade goes off, everything changes. And then it says in there that multiple suddenly just came yes. out of nowhere and yeah. attacked them all. And yes. it grabbed him and just, yeah, just disintegrated him, him and yeah. just turned him into some goo and then pushed him into the space that he had made. And, and even Holden was like... the did that thing just turn him? I think he calls him like, did he just turn him into like fertilizer? And he was like, yeah. Like that, I was yeah. like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. And I just, I just I was imagining, yeah, like man-sized robotic, ro um, robotic uh, spiders. Yeah. Just jumping on him and being like, and their, their legs ending in, you know, just like serrated pincers. knives yeah. and whatever. Just being like, yeah, <laughs> Edward Scissorhands and sliced that man up and, pushed him into the hole he made yeah. and then sealed it and was like, yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it was, it, it was gross, but yeah. yeah, even, even watching it, I was just like, oh my, oh my God. I, um, I love that scene as well. I right. love the stuff. Yes, definitely. in dealing with the proto molecule. And I 
you know, in the book, we finally get an explanation for a scene in the show that um, had totally escaped me. And I didn't realize that's what it was. And what I'm talking about is um, in the in the show, when Holden makes it onto the station and, you know, uh, Miller is prompting him to touch the, the control panel. And he touches the control panel and all of a sudden he's like, you know, he's screaming and we see him kind of like floating naked in the void and he's you know all this and he's having this experience clearly but from us watching it it was a very um uh, i don't know yeah it's hard get this starting scene like there was no connection there right you know but in the book when they tell you what it is that he's seeing and experiencing and and the reason he comes out of that with such an intense you know, fear. Right. It all made so much sense. I was like, yes. man, they really should like redo this scene because yes, it sounds amazing. Yeah, I totally agree. That um, one of the books I've read about storytelling, you know, in a book you can get the character's internal experience, but when you're watching a character on a screen, it is extremely difficult to to uh, show the experience of the internal. And so in that scene, there's no talking. He's no. just seeing all of this stuff about how the proto-molecule beings, how they their civilization was destroyed and how they were experiencing some traumatic climate, you know, civilization ending experience and how they were, you know, choosing drastic measures to try and stop it and how they were failing. But in the show, I mean they show that they like shot a beam into a sun. But you don't get the full experience. Like they yeah. should have shown multiple times. Yeah, that's like, the thing. Too. They should have shown they did this multiple times. That's what the book is saying. They tried it in one area, thought they had kind of like cauterized the wound, just to, to use a phrase there. Right. And then they started doing it again and again right. and again to stop this cascade that they were noticing was happening. And that's right. the other thing too. It, it is a they because we are now clued into the fact that this is not a civilization of individuals they kind of exist in like a hive mind uh collective type which you know i I, as a star trek fan anytime i hear hive mind collective whatever (laughs) i'm always gonna think of the borg and it just i know that it's fake i know you know it's you know sci-fi whatever but just just thinking about it for a brief second and, and even giving it the remotest possibility it creeps me out. The thought of a loss of all individuality creeps me out. So when I hear it, I'm just like, I, I don't want to deal with whatever that is. And right. then, you know, they, you know, they're telling you the greater implications of what, um, what Eros was before it was trapped in, um, um, Jupiter's gravity well or whatever it was for 2 billion years yeah. and how it was sent out to do this thing all this, all these times ago. And, right. and that kind of seems to be there modus operandi they like doing this they open these gates and they send these probes through and they just kind of see what happens on the other side right. you know and, and start or end civilizations or whatever it is i mean this is something that um you know that kind of repeating of history you know where you know civilizations are begun because another one was ending or their cycle was up and someone else is you know co-opting them or whatever else that comes up a lot in sci-fi too you right. know, um, and this is where I started to see connections to um, not only Battlestar Galactica, but also a, another uh, video game called uh, Mass Effect. Yeah. And uh, the cyclical story, you know, is is 
it's an interesting type of mythology that I don't think I'd ever really considered before. You know, Battlestar Galactica, especially the reboot, talks about how all of this has happened before and will happen again. The cycle of the rise of civilization ultimately wiped out by um, synthetic life and then supplanted again by something seemingly new entirely to start the cycle over and over um, is their storyline. And then, of course, Mass Effect is the same thing. Right. Societies rise up to a certain level of technological advancement before something happens that causes them to be kind of, you know, either wiped out or brought back down to, you know, uh, Stonehenge level right. at best. Right. You know, and the cycle continues. So um, I want to talk about those, of course, because uh, we've both watched Battlestar Galactica. And um, knowing that, and then watching The Expanse, and we're talking about kind of the similar thing here. What do you think that is? Why do you think that we kind of go into this area of of storytelling that we start to think about how our civilization is not the first, that there was one or multiples that came before, that we are just living through this cyclical stage of development and ultimately destruction and rebirth? Well, I think that that is part of life, frankly. You know, there's us, our bodies, our bodies age, we, we reach our peak and then we have a steady decline. Uh, there's the cyclicalness of the seasons, you know, same thing. There's the height of summer and there's the depth of winter. Um, but then society is in that eternal question. If society and civilization is trying to perpetuate itself um, and at the same time develop, at what point – the question is at what point does the development actually cause decay it, when it corrodes something to the point – that it actually undermines everything that it it was and causes it to collapse on itself. Is it the weight of everything on top of that foundation that collapses? Is it some sort of acidity that you know drips down and destroys the foundation? What is it that causes all that? And in Mass Effect, I mean, I haven't played the games, but I do know the storyline. The idea there is that there are these beings outside of like space, the edges of the universe, that once you like reach the edge of the universe, or the galaxy, or wherever. They, uh, they come in and they destroy all life and reset it, basically. Um, they're this, like, yeah. hot, organic, synthetic they're hybrid. Called, uh, yeah, they're called the Reapers. Yes. And, um, yeah, that's essentially it. They Basically, they have ultimate control over this base technology that is existing in all of the other um, alien races. Right. And because these races then build their societies off of the technological advances they make from this um, kind of ancestral technology. Um, it ultimately renders them incapable of defeating the Reapers when they come. It also triggers the Reapers because once you reach a certain point and your development reaches a certain point, they now know that you have the capability to be basically a resource for them to consume. So right. that's what invites them in, and the cycle seems to be every 50,000 years or so, give or take. And uh, yeah, there were there are some survivors from the previous cycle who, during the previous cycle, they weren't as advanced, so they were left alone by the Reapers. And now here they come, now they've gotten their chance to kind of come up in the, in the galaxy. Now they're, it's their turn to fight the Reapers, and yeah, we've got... Commander Shepard leading his team, trying to figure out a way to um, stop this reaping of of civilization as we know it. Right. Yeah. Um, but you know, again, it's as that that story it comes up a lot in in 
humanity in mythology. There are a lot of different cultures that have a story of this type of rise of a civilization, then the cataclysmic fall, and then the rebirth, right? right. And, um, you know, I always wonder why so many cultures share such a similar story, you know, across the across, across the world, especially considering that for a lot of them, these are ancient stories, and they come from times when knowledge of other areas of the world didn't didn't exist, right. you know. So it always strikes me as you know bizarre that there are so many of these stories with so many similarities that it's almost like it, it just makes me wonder sometimes, like what happened, because it's it almost makes you feel like you can pinpoint a moment where there was a collective sharing for us of these of, of an event and then it kind of goes from there and i know that there was you know i don't know if anybody's familiar with um, carl jung but he talks about a collective unconsciousness in his um in his work through psychiatry and and psychology and talks about why we have certain archetypes that are uh, universal and it does stem from this collective unconsciousness of a shared experience in humanity and so i always just wonder like if we if that's what these stories kind of pick up on in our maybe unintentionally using and giving us a framework for storytelling as well well i mean uh the 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 biblical christian answer to that would be the story of noah and the flood that um the story of noah and the flood is that the ancient world whatever that was got to such a point that they were just so evil that God was like, okay, I gotta, I'm gonna kill all of them in one cataclysmic event, and only save Noah and his seven family members and two of the animals. Which, if you go to Answers in Genesis, which is a Christian organization that explains how that could have physically happened, uh, they say that you're not talking about like every breed of dog. You're talking about a canine and a canine pair, and then from all canines came all the other canine stuff like that. But anyway, just that, that would be the Christian answer to that. What is the collective experience? The flood would be the collective experience, uh, according to the Christian and Jewish tradition. Um, yeah. Why well, I, I bring it up only because I, I've always liked that line of, of psychology. Cause we, cause again, there are so many shared stories, right? Like, um, I mean, you could, just think of any famous story that you've ever heard of in history, and you can find that similar tale told in almost every culture going way, you know, all the way back to ancient, you know, times, just almost outdating itself, right? Right. Like, you know, Romeo and Juliet was not told for the first time by William Shakespeare. That's right, the, yep. You know, uh, right. You know, you, you can find that several times, and even... You know, just, and again, you know, the Greeks had it, the um, ancient uh, Mesopotamians and Egyptians and uh, Chinese, Japanese cultures, they all had their versions of stories like that. So um, to find that we're still doing it in, in this century, and then obviously we're projecting into the future with the expanse and we're finding that same kind of thing, I always find that very interesting. So if anybody knows of any other parallels, feel please feel free to um, let me know because I'd like reading on those lines of mythology as well. Um, now, Battlestar Galactica does it in a way that basically is telling us that uh, the reason that we seem to be stuck in this cyclical pattern is less about uh, a natural um, evolution and more about we just keep making the same stupid mistake over and over again. 
And our downfall was always in thinking that this time we're not going to make the same choice. And yet we do. So um, I don't think I see that here with uh, the expanse, but no, now that I think about it, I guess we do because one of the one of the key themes in the story is Holden constantly trying to make what he feels is the correct decision, but he's so dumb about it in some ways. And like yeah. Miller keeps coming in and being like, "You're, you know, you're kind of stupid," you know. And it's just it um, cracks me up. But like I love the those Ava little lines. cameo is exactly about that very thing, by the way. Oh great! <laughs> I love her. I love her so much. Oh, I love this I'm character. I'm telling you, man, it uh, is. I was laughing out loud in the middle of my mechanic shop as I was reading her scenes because she is just amazing. But keep going. <laughs> okay. Um, but no, I mean, I, I think that that's just an interesting thing that we keep talking about. Like, you know, the the well-intended person, right? The well-meaning man, whatever. And that's what Holden is supposed to be, which, you know, in the first book, he kind of annoyed me with just how, you know, he was so committed to doing good and it almost made him boring, right? Yeah. And now we've gotten into this whole other level and he's dealing with this protomolecule and the, the station and what it means and what he needs to do. And and Miller is just like, I told you, you know, doors and corners, idiot. Like, stop just charging yeah. into things, you know? Yeah. And it's just like, he's so well-meaning, and yet he does things from such a state of obliviousness that when I'm reading the book, I'm like, I would never do that. Like, I would (laughs) never just charge into something. Like, why do you do what you do? Like, I don't understand it. And even the show comments on it, too, about um, uh, it's with Prax and Holden, and they're talking in the the mess hall on the Rosinante, and and he's talking about how... Um, Holden is like a child in the sense that he always has this hope and he's always pushing to do something better and he has this optimism about him that no one else has and Holden even says well another word for child is fool and, and practice like yeah but a fool keeps going a fool keeps trying a fool keep, you know whatever and I'm like yeah and even as they were saying it I understood they were trying to like Pat Holden on the back a little bit, but to me I was going, yeah, but you're still a fool. You you can you can be well intended, but at least don't be stupid. Like you're still dumb. You're still doing dumb things. Right. Um, but yeah, that's what was ticking, <laughs> pissing me off a little bit about the character. And I was like, man, Adama would never. Adama would like I never would do it. And right. Yeah. Again, I, I love my my little Battlestar moments. I guess when they pop right. up and just get to do those parallels. Right. Have you seen any of that here with Battlestar? Like when you when you read it or watch it, do you think do you think about those other shows and see any connections yourself? Um, I can't say I think of Battlestar per se, um, mainly because the premises of the shows are so different. Though I guess actually the later seasons of of the Expanse would fit with uh, with Battlestar a little bit more because you're more out in space, you know, f- trying to survive. Um, with all the stuff that happens in those later uh, books and seasons. Um, I'm trying to think, you know, I guess in the moment, I don't really think about the comparisons when I'm watching or reading the expanse per se. Um, I mean, my favorite sci-fi series is the Ender's game series, mm-hmm. uh, which has most of the books are, are good, but there are some, the most recent one <laughs> and worse than Scott card put out is a real dud. Unfortunately, um, well, they can't all be, they can't all be winners, man. Oh, I'm, I'm anticipating in this, in this nine book series we've got here. I'm anticipating somewhere being oh. let down. 
I thought it was gonna be I thought it was gonna be this one. I really did, but the more that I have read of it, the more I've just like I feel like I understand the worldview more because of this book. So I think that's why it's coming up as my favorite. Well, for me, as long as they can keep the whole proto molecule part of the story makes sense. Like, we need to have an explanation for what's going on. Because what's so great about the story is you have the A plot, the protomolecule stuff, but all of the rich character stuff happens in the quote-unquote B plots, the interpersonal storylines. Um, so you get the, the backbone and the storyline from the protomolecule stuff, but you get the richness and the, you know, the muscles on the bone from those storylines. Um, like, the, the, the beginning of book four is, a char- is, is, is told from a character's perspective that we actually – briefly met in book two he wasn't a point of view character in book two but he now is and again part of the reason that the expanse is so well written and in my opinion better written than this one i mean this one i've gotten to the point where i can understand what's going on but i'm still enjoying the characters from the expanse all a, a whole lot better um is it's just so rich like even in the show actually i forgot to mention Drummer is a great character in the show. I don't think she quite works in this season because she's made captain of the Nauvoo, which is now the behemoth. But she like she's not comfortable in the role, and she's kind of just a little awkward. But I do like Ashford better. What do you, do you have any opinions on Ashford? I feel he's better in the so, show. So I definitely like Ashford on the show. What yeah. I've read of him in, especially in this book, I don't like him at all. Yeah, I mean, he's and a villain was, in the book, but in the yeah, show, he's which, like a anti-hero type. Yeah, guy. which was kind of bothering me because, you know, we watched the show first before we started reading the books, of course. And, I mean, when he initially comes in, I, I have to admit, I didn't like him at first, but I warmed up to him pretty quickly. And, um, yeah, you're right. He's like an anti-hero a bit. He's He's... You know, he's not even really a pragmatist. He's kind of, well, I mean, he's, he's an asshole, to be honest. And he just, <laughs> yeah. but he does things in such a way that you're just like, okay, you, you, I think you like him because you realize he understands how to play the game. He's yes. not just belter for the belt, everything belter, whatever. Yes. He recognizes that, like, while he's he does want guy. the. Yeah. Right, he wants the belt to succeed. He wants them to have their sovereignty, but he understands they're never going to get it just by being brutal thugs out in space right. and so they have to play this other game and he's skilled at it yes. and that's who he comes across on the show in the book he is he's incompetent yeah yeah that's the best word for him he is totally incompetent and yeah. um probably the best thing is when they mutinied and yeah. removed him you know right and then yeah you know on the show uh drummer is i guess she is bull and Pa put together. Yes. Yeah. And um, in the book, though, I like those two characters separately. Yes. I, Pa's I great understand. Character. I miss her yeah. as in the show. Yeah. Yeah, I understand why they, you know, kind of smacked them together. But um, I, like you said, Bull is he is the person who just gets things done. He's given kind of a general direction, but he understands the world that he's in and how and what needs to happen to work. It's right. not about achieving necessarily any ultimate goal beyond he does the work that keeps everybody alive right. and moving. And then Pa is there kind of to take it that next step. Okay, she's helped him to kind of get things stable. Now she is kind of, you know, the one to direct that course of the, the next bit of action and kind of push Ashford to make a decision up until the, the mutiny, of course. And right. so, um, you know, when they combine 
those two characters and kind of just make her, you know, make drummer is, yeah, she knows what to do to keep everybody alive, but then she also knows that next step too. She's, she's adept at both. So um, I get it, but yeah, I do miss Pa as well. She was, she was very cold, um, but not like, not that, I also want to say it's a cliched coldness that they give whenever they try to see, you know, they do a woman character and they're like, oh, she's really intelligent, so she must be a cold fish. No, there's not that. She's she's smart. She's precise. She obviously knows her people well. And I think she works well when the proper respect is shown her. And that's why her and Bull eventually start to work out so well together. Yeah. Because they kind of they don't cross that line with each other. They now understand each other's boundaries and work well. Right. So. Yeah. But yeah. Now, now I love Drummer though. I think Drummer is a great character. Yeah. Um, I loved watching I just, her on scene. Kara yeah, G does a in, great job. Yeah, it's just in the show in this season. Like she's supposed to be the captain of the of the behemoth, and then Ashford arrives, and he's basically he wants to be the captain and so he basically starts not so subtly you know kind of conflicting undermining her, her. he yeah. has his men on the bridge he can tell them what to do and they obey him and it's it's a great it's great conflict but she always comes off as weak because she never does a good job of really standing up to him and like asserting her position he's really great because he's always able to successfully undermine her which makes him a fun character but it means that the character of Drummer, unfortunately, like she really starts to shine. I feel in the next couple seasons, uh, yeah, when she, yeah, you're right, and and I think that like I think this is where I would say that they made a mistake on the show, and only because in the book the reason that Ashford is brought in is because um, the obvious choice to be captain was Bull, but Bull doesn't get it because he's an Earther, and this yeah. is a Belter. Belter ship, Belter station, yeah. and no one was going to take orders from some Earther on a Belter ship. Right. So they needed somebody with more experience and authority to lead it, and they there's no explanation for why Pa isn't given the given the role, but Ashford is there as the more senior male leader, whatever, right? Right. So then on the show, um, none of that would work here because Drummer is a Belter. She is the belter. She is yeah. she's the one that kind of legitimizes uh, Fred Johnson when she comes to yes. work for him. Mm-hmm. So for her to suddenly be on the behemoth with Ashford, it's like, why wouldn't she be the captain? And right. then him undermining her makes it seem like he's only doing it because while she may be a belter, she's a belter woman who works right. for Fred Johnson. So we right. don't know what she's up to. And that's where the undermining comes. Oh, she's just some woman. She's just, and I, and I didn't like that considering the fact that throughout everything of the show up to, a, up to this point, the women have been equal or better than a lot of the men. There was no reason to do this kind of backward undermining of, of drummer here i wish they had made another reason for ashford to be there maybe just say it out loud like you know it made or not drummer but ashford you know um well i didn't have a problem with ashford trying to take command i like the conflict and i like that he was competent in his like his competency in undermining her but also sucking up to her enough that like he was making like he smoothed the way i just don't like the fact that drummer like for example when the ships also are forced to stop in the ring, 
um, and they get trapped by that tractor trailer thing. Mm-hmm. Like she's in that room because she's having a pity party. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah. and she like turned off her, her, her phone thing. And it's like, her you're the captain. Yeah. like if you're, if he is so good at undermining you that you're actually running away to go pout, then he's won the game. Like that's yeah. my problem with the character in that moment. I just wish she had done a better the 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 character the the authors or the showrunners at that point had given us a better reason for that that event. You know why is drummer why is she in charge? How is she holding up to to Ashford better? Because um, I like Ashford in the show a lot. Like I like his explanation. I mean mm-hmm. it's the same explanation in the book for why they're going to try and destroy the ring. They think that the ring is going to you know, destroy Earth, so, like, we gotta take it out before it destroys Earth, this is a noble sacrifice. In the book, he comes off as insane, but in the show, they do a better job of making him seem rational, which is more fun. I'd rather have someone be rational in their making a decision than just be, I'm losing my mind and I'm just gonna blow everything up because I'm insane. Uh, I just, again, I just like the show at times taking a second hit at at the... yeah, go ahead, Which is, it's, I was just going to say, it's odd that we get that characterization in the show and not the book, because typically in the books, you know, up to a point, you can identify with your villain. You know, there's always supposed to come become a point where you're like, okay, uh, you had me and then you lost me, right? And that's why you're the villain, because it was kind of the same for everybody. We, we didn't know you were the villain until you said something or you did something and truly revealed yourself. Right. Whereas on the show, um, he, like I said, he knows how to play the game. He makes sense consistently. So it doesn't throw us off. And I think that's why there was kind of that rewrite on him on, on being our villain here and becoming more that anti-hero who eventually works with drummer who obviously we like. And I think that also had a lot to do with it too. I think the response to drummer, um, on the show had them change certain things. They are moving from season to season, you know? Um, and, uh, in the book, he like, he is so one dimensional that when he eventually loses it, you're just like, Oh, thank God. I've been, <laughs> I've been kind of waiting for that to happen. Whereas on the right. show, we don't have that. So right. I think it's interesting that the book failed here versus the show yeah. getting it right. So a clear example of what you've been saying, the, the show was an attempt for them to, you know, a second attempt. They got a right. second chance at bat here and they really kind of knocked it out of the park with this character and made it work. Right. So I like yeah. that a lot as well. Yeah. Now, um, as I said, I have not completely finished it, so we will probably be doing this again to you know, kind of wrap <laughs> up this book and move into the next. Or did we decide that we were going to take a little bit of a break? Because I know that you were reading some other stuff. I had some other things I wanted to um, get into as well. And um, Well, I, I'm ready to move on to book four. And, I mean, like I said, okay. I had already read a, some like 40-ish pages of the fourth book already because I was taking a break from this one because I was having trouble starting this one. Um, again, I'm halfway through this one now. Um, okay. But uh, if you if you have something else to read, I have other things I'm reading. In fact, um, I don't know if, it, if we talked about this yet for anybody, but you and I are a big fan of The Count of Monte Cristo. You yes. had reread it a couple years ago. Yes, I had started it um... – was that the first or second year of COVID lockdown? <laughs> I, I think don't it was even year remember. one. And I have a copy of it, and I started reading it, but then I got distracted and didn't read it again. Because I read the abridged version back in middle school, and I remember oh. loving it. 
And I have a full copy of it now, and I just haven't gotten around to reading the whole, like, you know, 800 pages. <laughs> it's a long one. But I remember loving the book as a kid, and again, reading the, the abridged version in, in middle school. My favorite line, I'm going to go ahead and say it now, is near the end, where I forget which character it is, but the line is that um, when the overthrow of his mind was complete, something, something, something. But just that part right there, when the overthrow of his mind was complete, like the guy goes insane at the end, one of the one of the villains, um, and I just that line has always stuck with me. But um, yeah, anyway, what a, great, what a great way to say someone has gone insane. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, my point is, is that like I want to reread that. Um, so if we're taking a break from the expanse or at least until you, uh, feel ready to get to book four, um, yeah. I have other things I can read. So yeah. Okay. That's fine. So yeah, cause I, I don't want to, uh, I want to give myself a chance to like kind of just sit for a little bit and, and not, uh, jump immediately to the next one. Now that may change when I finally finish this and be like, no, I've got to know, I've got to know what's next and just, uh, and start reading it. I promise I'll let you know that way I don't like sneak up on you or something <laughs> but no i've got um for christmas i got the complete autobiographies of james c kirk um captain Catherine janeway and jean-luc picard oh they're and written I, as autobiographies yes oh, uh, hang on hang this. on hang on just a second oh he's gonna go get him all right yeah oh man what do we got <laughs> And um, so this one, this is another one I wanted to read as well. I haven't gotten to it yet, and I've had this for a while, and so I haven't read it. And it was the H.P. Lovecraft collection. Right. So wanted to get to that, and I think I've mentioned that before a long time ago. Still haven't read it. I think I got this. I think I got that also, like, first year, second year of COVID. I don't remember. But, um, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, didn't, didn't read it. And then, again, for Christmas... I received from my uh, sister these books, and they are, again, the autobiography of James T. Kirk, the autobiography of Jean-Luc Picard, of course, (laughs) and, of course, the autobiography of Catherine Janeway. So, lots to read, and uh, I want to have time to really get through them all. I love that they've got the pictures of the captains and stuff on the backs of them (laughs) as well. So, now... Of course, as much as I love these, and, and I'm I'm thrilled to have them, of course, there's a captain missing, and uh, I don't think they've released his yet. So, um, have they written it? I'm is it released? Or? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's even been uh, written yet, but um, each of these, if you're familiar with these at all, each of these is about a particular moment in each captain's life, right? A defining moment. That's what these are about. It's not like their whole life from birth to whatever. It's like each captain or someone familiar to the captain wrote about a particular incident that kind of uh, frames frames it. Yeah. So I'm interested to see the Cisco one. And I want to know what event it is that they choose. Because, I mean, to me, the obvious event to choose would be the Battle of Wolf 359. Yeah, but it almost um, now, seems too obvious a choice. Right, and I was going to say, I mean, I could also see them using that as the moment for Jean-Luc, because obviously he was assimilated and deeply affected and so forth. Um, so I want to know what it is they're going to use for Cisco, And uh haven't seen anything on it yet, so if anyone sees it, knows where it is, 
let me know because I need to get that one to complete the set. But um, yeah, I'm very, very interested in those as well. Oh, I just realized they they each came with um, each book came with a little. Uh, oh my goodness! Card. I didn't realize those were in there. They just fell out when I <laughs> just fell out when I put it down. So very nice. nice. Okay. <laughs> So yeah, I want to get to those, and then of course I have the you know the next book for the Expanse series as well. So we've got a lot, a lot of things that we're going to be bringing you with in the way of I guess content um, for our show. Because I mean we're not just going to talk about Deep Space Nine. We're going to do all the things uh, clearly, everything. Right. And, and why not? You love us, right? I mean you like hearing our voices as we talk about stuff that you can watch yeah. or buy or buy through Amazon, right? Yeah. And speaking of best lines, um, I wrote this one down before we end everything because you brought it up. I wrote this one down, and it was from the Expanse, and um, it was from the character Tilly on board the USS Thomas Prince. And this is when her and Anna were just kind of getting to know each other, and they were. And Tilly was talking about her husband, and she says, "Robert is the least sexual creature I've ever met, at least until they invent a way to fuck money." I don't know why that stuck with that me, yeah. but I laughed. Like I laughed out loud when I read it, and I was like, "That's that's Bryce. We're gonna yeah, write that that's down." That's the whole sequence where she's talking about how she's not worried that he's cheating on her because when she ever she finds him alone, it's always in his room with charts and spreadsheets, facts and, and figures, and yeah, at business quotas and whatever yeah. else. And yeah, that was her response to the question as to whether or not her husband Robert was cheating on her. Because she's out here by alone, by herself, out in the right. rest of space while he's back on Earth. <laughs> oh, and she's like, "Yeah, Robert is the least sexual creature I've ever met. At least until they invent a way to fuck money." <laughs> so um, when I, I again, I laughed. I thought that was. I was like, "Who wrote this?" Like that right there is as close to poetry as we're going to get in this century. Right. Cause that was fantastic. And I, you know, and it's a, it's one of those things that um, wasn't included in the show. And also the character of Tilly in the show is significantly younger than how she's portrayed in the book. So I wonder why they made uh, that particular choice. Cause I don't think an older Tilly would have uh, hurt anything, you yeah. know? So, um, but who knows? Yeah. Well, um, we've definitely gone over. Oh yeah, this time is a long here, after dark. Some of our after yeah. darks are just thirty minutes long. This one's yeah. Three we times we got that. into well, we talked about a lot here, and I mean, I still feel like we only touched on a couple of things. I really oh, did yeah. want to get and we'll and we, again, we're going to come back because we still have to finish this whole thing. Um, but I did want to talk more about the religious overtones that we got in the book. I figure like that's something we should definitely do, considering our respective religious stances. So you can get that. Um, next time as well. Um, as I said, th now that After Dark will be um, in probably two weeks, let's just say, because next week we have our you know beginning of season four of Deep Space Nine, one of my favorite episodes, and the it's the beginning of the season I've been waiting on with David for so so long, and uh, so we're finally <laughs> here. We're finally here. Um, so be prepared for a pretty big event for that. And don't forget about the giveaway. Again, you'll need to listen to the episode or, or watch it on YouTube, whatever. Leave question, comment, something. Be polite. And uh, then we'll uh, pull your name. We'll contact you. And we'll send you your mug. All right. That's how that'll work. Real simple process. And you get it for free. So, I mean, 
free free mug, man. There's no no downside here. Free mug. All right. All right. Well, uh, until next time and until season four, take care of yourselves. Thanks, guys.